It's good to know that, isn't it? It is good to know that. Let's pray to our reigning God. Mm. You are the same today, yesterday, and forever, Father. You're the God that we read about in Scripture from the ancient text, God of glory, holiness, God of power, might, God of grace and love, compassion, God who is a righteous judge, a God who will accomplish His purposes, every detail of those purposes in absolute perfection according to your perfect time. Just thinking about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, His crucifixion, His death, His burial, His resurrection, all happening exactly as you said it would happen. In intricate detail. And just like you displayed your power, Jesus, just like you broke the bonds of the tomb and rose to new life, defeated sin and death and hell, and then ascended back into heaven to your throne in the view of your followers to reign again forever. You're reigning today. And that's what we've been singing about. You reign. We know what you want is you want to reign over our lives. You want us to keep you on the throne of our lives in thought, in word, in deed, in motive, in desire, in pursuit. Pray that you would talk to us about that even today, Lord, from your word. God, whatever it is that you want to speak from passage that we're going to look at, a couple of verses this morning, I've got some things prepared, but I know that what I have to say by itself is not going to accomplish anything of eternal value, but you're Holy Spirit, speaking those words can do the impossible, can do the miraculous. And I am asking you right now to do that. That this broken, empty vessel, Brad Suter, right here, would be empty of self, filled with the person of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ, the Son, to the glory of the Father. And that that truth would penetrate hearts and minds, open understandings, speak words that need to be heard, life-giving words today. For your glory, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
Please open up to Romans chapter 7. We have been on a kind of a hiatus last couple of months this summer. We had been on a long-term journey, been preaching through Paul's letter to the church at Rome, verse by verse. We've been on that for quite a long time, but we took a little break this summer to do some other things. We're coming back to that now, at least here for a period of time. And where we've come is to Romans chapter 7, verse 5, so I want you to open there and just put your finger there for a minute. But if you're anything like me, seven days is a long time for me to remember, even as the preacher, and and it's been months, and you aren't the preacher, you're just a hearer, so we're going to review just for a minute here. Let me just uh, try to set before you just in a couple of minutes the overview and unfolding look at the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome and bring you up to speed here to Romans chapter 7, verse 5. The development is like this. Romans chapter 1, Paul opens there, beginning at verse 18, he begins to talk about the wrath of God. The wrath of God that is against humanity and over the next three chapters throughout Romans 1, 2, and 3 down to verse 20 of chapter 3, what Paul does in that treatment is he throws the net of God's wrath, his just holy wrath against sin over all of humanity, bar none, over the pagan, which we would just automatically assume, but then not only over the pagan, also over the moralist, the one that thinks that by doing good things they somehow appease God, and then also even over the Jew, God's chosen people, the ones that He had given the law to and called unto Himself. Paul throws the blanket of God's wrath, the guilt of sin over the entire lot of the human race and says they're all guilty. Then in Romans chapter 3, I believe it's 20 or 21, then he makes the transition to bring the hope where there is now hopelessness, and he says, but now, but now. And that's the cue, and he uses that phrase numerous times throughout his letters, and it is a cue that something significant, something incredible, something radical and all-transforming is about to be said. And then he breaks into the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he says, but now a righteousness from God has been made known, a righteousness that comes through the Son Jesus Christ. And what Paul does is he begins to teach about the doctrine of grace, the doctrine of grace that says this, that because of the Father's grace in sending the Son, that we are saved, are justified, are made right with God by faith alone in Christ alone, period. 
not by works of the law, not by anything that we can merit, not by any self-perceived righteousness. We're all guilty under the wrath of God. There's only one way we can be saved, and that is by receiving the free gift that Jesus gives through his death, burial, and resurrection. It is faith in him and him alone that saves. And he continues that development all the way to the end of chapter 5. And then he makes this incredible statement, concluding statement at the end of chapter 5. I want to read it to you, two verses. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What Paul does is he just summed up the first five chapters in a great statement about the abounding grace of God. But there are two ideas there, two concepts there that caused a number of people to begin to accuse Paul, to begin to misuse Paul's teaching, to say things that he wasn't saying or accuse him of things that he was not teaching. Paul understood that. This, wasn't, uh, this was an ongoing habit, an ongoing uh, issue that Paul faced as he went around preaching his gospel, that these two different groups of people would, one would misuse and abuse his teaching, the other would misunderstand and accuse him. And so what Paul does is he stops at the end of Romans chapter 5 and he takes a diversion to answer those two issues, those two groups of people. Romans chapter 6, he gives the first answer. And here is the group that he answers. He answers the group that says this. If grace superabounds when sin increases, if grace is going to win the day as sin rises up and grace is going to rise up even more in a superabounding way, a powerful way, and win the day, then, hey, let's sin some more so that grace can increase some more. And they begin to try to use Paul's teaching about the grace of God coming through faith in Christ to say, hey, that means that we can go out and live a life of sin, and it doesn't matter. Using grace for license to sin. And so what Paul does in chapter 6 is he deals with that. The entire chapter is divided into two sections. He says it, first of all, in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he explains why that is a ridiculous statement. He comes to verse 15, and he says it again, slightly different. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And he answers that and shows the ridiculous conclusion that such a doctrine is. But then in chapter 7, he addresses the other group. 
What is the concern? What is the accusation that this group makes against Paul? It has to do with what he said in verse 20 and verse 14, in chapter 5, verse 20, and in 614. Listen, verse 20 of chapter 5. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Wait a minute. Paul said, the law, the law of God came in to increase the trespass. Paul, what in the world are you saying? You are defaming the law of God. Imagine what the Jew would think when they heard that statement that the law of God came in to increase sin. And as if that was an insult enough, chapter 6, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Paul, now you're saying that we are not, that believers are not any longer under the law of God, that they can just throw out and forget the law of God? That's what they were claiming. They were saying, Paul, your teaching of the free grace of God through faith in Christ alone, that's going to encourage those who embrace that to just discount the law altogether and say, wow, I can just live in lawlessness so that, Paul, you are actually promoting lawlessness by your teaching. You are promoting sinful living. That was their accusation. And so Paul wrote chapter 7 to answer that group. Let me just read the first six verses of chapter 7. And we'll see some of the response to that group today as we walk through just verses 5 and 6. But for context, let's, let's read the first six verses. I'm reading for, from the English Standard Version. Romans 7, 1, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, what is Paul talking about here? I'm not going to preach this. Just let me give you the one key fundamental truth that he is making. This is not a treatment on marriage and divorce and remarriage. He's using marriage as an illustration to teach a truth about the law. And the truth is this that the law is binding over an individual until death. That's the fundamental principle. The law of God is binding, has dominion over, sway over an individual until death. And then he uses the marriage illustration to explain that. But then he says, drawing that truth to application. In verse 4, he says, likewise, my brothers, just like the woman in the story had the husband that died, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. 
You see, what Paul has been teaching all the way from Romans chapter 5, verse 12, is that when Jesus Christ died, that when you placed your faith in Him, just like He died to sin, the death He died, you died. We spent a lot of time explaining that. And that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that when you place your faith in Him, what happens is that the Spirit of God places you in Christ so that what is true of Christ is true of you. Therefore, Christ died to sin once and for all. You died to sin once and for all. Christ raised to new life, indestructible life, eternal life. You raised to new life, indestructible life, eternal life. That's what being united with Christ means. He's been teaching that over and over and over again. And so he is reiterating here in Romans 7, 4, likewise, my brothers, you died to the law through the body of Christ, just like Christ died to the law. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, which is Jesus, in order that we may bear fruit for God. You see, here's the illustration just like the woman had a husband who died and that released her from the law of that marriage so that she was free to marry another, the point is a death has to happen in order to break the power of the law and release you. And the reality is if you're a believer, Jesus Christ's death becomes your death and you die in that death and you are released from the law so that you, just like the woman, are now free to marry another groom. And that groom is Jesus Christ, your bride. That's the illustration. Then we come to the text for today. And what Paul is going to do here, now that he has given the illustration and application, he is going to explain it in verses 5 and 6. First of all, from the negative side, verse 5. He's going to talk about the life of the person that is still in their sin, that is not a part of Christ. And then in verse 6, he's going to talk about the difference that is made when they commit their life to Christ. So let's look at the picture that he paints here. Verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now what I want to do is I want to just take a few minutes here and I want to explain the different phrases and words in that verse because they need to be understood for you to grasp what Paul is and the, particularly the force with which Paul is stating the truth that he's stating here. So let's just take the phrases here, the words here, uh, one at a time and, and just try to bring some quick clarity. First of all, the flesh. Talking about the one that is living prior to salvation, he says that while we were living in the flesh, this is prior to justification, prior to accepting Christ. What does it mean to live in the flesh? It is contrasted here you look in verse 6 with another phrase that will help us understand it. And the phrase is this, living in the Spirit. That living in the flesh 
is the opposite of living in the Spirit, capital S. That the antithesis to living in the Spirit is to living in the flesh. This is man's natural state prior to salvation. Here's how Scripture talks about that, that it is a life lived with the principle of sin. Now, let me just define that for a moment. It doesn't mean that you simply commit sins, commit acts of sin. It means something far more deep and sinister than that. It means that your life is a life controlled by the principle of sin, singular. The domineering control of sin over your life is the defining characteristic of life prior to salvation through Christ. That's what he means by saying, for while we were living in the flesh, it was a life lived under the power of the domineering control and bondage of sin. What about sinful passions? While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions. These are referring to affections, those desires of the flesh. Now, it doesn't mean that the things of the flesh are bad, that the passions of the flesh are bad. For example, food. Anybody here once in a while passionate about having some food? How about relationship? How about intimacy. God created us for those things. Those things are not bad. There are natural appetites. But what Paul is talking about here is when those passions become sinful passions. You see, what happened at the fall, those natural instincts and desires, appetites that God placed in us, they became perverted, marred in the fall, so that what we try to do now is that after, because of the fall, because of sin, we try to satisfy those in a way that God never intended for them to be satisfied. They actually supplant the place that God is supposed to hold in our lives. They become the domineering, controlling force and focus in our lives. That's when the passions become sinful passions. And they do that because sin now has that domineering control so that the passions, the natural instincts become perverted and we begin to want to act out on sins because the power and control of sin dominates our life. It's the picture Paul is painting here. And then he makes an incredible statement. Really, this needs to be understood. He says about those sinful passions that they are aroused by the law. Now just think about what Paul is saying right there. That our sinful passions, what arouses them, what incites them, what causes them to rise up and like fanning them into hotter flame, he says it is actually the law of God that does that. That our sinful passions are aroused 
by the law of God. Now, he is not saying that the law created those passions. They didn't originate with the law of God. Here's how it unfolds. Because the controlling force, the domineering reality of the life of the individual that has not been justified, has not been saved, is sin singular. That when that life and that heart motivated with that purpose and focus hears and sees the law of God, what the law of God generates is that that sin rises up and says, I'm going to break that law. That's how, how the law actually arouses sin. The law of God that is good and that is pure and that is holy actually becomes the very thing that incites the non-Christian to sin more deeper more grievous ways. And then what happens is that that sin begins to work in our members. The end of the verse there. Strong word for work there. Important to understand the force behind this word, work, that these sinful passions aroused by the law are at work. Strong word. Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. Let me just quote it for you. It says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The word for work there is not the word used in Romans 7, 5. The the word in Philippians 2.12 is a much weaker word for work. It's man's work. But then in Philippians 2.13, Paul continues and says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to act according to His good purpose. The word used for the work of God is the same word used in Romans 7.5. The work of God always is a powerful work. He is the omnipotent God. So what Paul is teaching here in Romans 7, 5 is that the sinful passions that are at work in us are at work in us in a profoundly powerful way. They absolutely control the life of the non-believer absolutely dictate, keeps that non-believer in bondage. They are the driving force of his or her life. He's talking about a very strong, powerful force. The other aspect to the Greek word there for work is this, that it is something that is not only powerful in the extreme, it is done internally deeply. So what Paul is saying here is that the sinful passions that are aroused by the law are working so deeply and so powerfully in life that that person is absolutely hopeless to do anything but obey the dictates of that power of sin. 
In fact, even the law of God cannot stop that person from doing that. In fact, take it a leap further, the law of God actually incites the person to sin even more. That's Romans chapter 7, verse 5. Now, just with an explanation of those terms to understand with, a clar- with clarity the force behind them, let me draw two conclusions or true, two principles of truth now based upon what I've just told you. Two principles of truth then that we can pull from Romans 7, 5. Here they are, number one. This verse teaches that sin is exceedingly sinful. It's teaching us here. Paul is trying to describe for us the blackness and the depth and the brutalness of the nature and the character of sin. Church, I believe one of the great greatest needs of the American church is that we have far too light of a view of sin. We don't see it for what it really is. We need to. Paul is here trying to paint a picture for us of how exceedingly brutal sin is. It is so brutal that it deeply gets in and controls every aspect of life, even to the point where it takes the holy, pure law of God and uses that which is holy and true and pure as a means by which to incite further evil depths of depravity in the human heart. That's how wicked and evil sin is. Paul is teaching us that here in this verse. Here's the second thing that I believe we can draw from this verse. It's that moral instruction is impotent to change lives. I just think about that for a minute. Moral instruction is absolutely impotent to change lives. If Paul's description is right and you're trying to reform an individual who is not a believer and you want to do that by preaching morality at them, what is the morality actually going to do in their life? Is it going to reform them? What's it going to do? It's going to incite them to greater levels of sin. Why? Because the domineering principle of sin that controls their life, when they hear what they should not be doing, sin uses that as an occasion to say, wow, wouldn't you really like to do that? Hey, let's try. That sounds really fun. Let's try that. And folks, If you're awake and listening this morning and you've lived uh, even more than a few years, you know exactly what I'm talking about with your own heart and your own experience. 
And if you have ever been a parent with a, a little one or two running around the house, oh, you know so vividly what I'm talking about, seeing it fleshed out in your kids. Now, thinking about that principle, what does that say about our secular attempts and the money that we pour and the resources and the people and the time and the structures that we pour into trying to reform through morality? They're hopeless. They are hopeless. You can't take something external and force it internal and change a heart that is broken and bent and hopelessly under the domineering control of sin. Impossible. Now that was a little distant and we can deal with the concept there, but let's bring it right home. What about how you raise your kids? Can you produce a child that is a child that lives right by telling that child the moral structure by which they should live their life? Will it ever work? I'm telling you, it will not. If that's all that you do, it will not. Morality does not create a changed life and a changed heart. It was never intended to do that, and it will never accomplish it. So what will produce children? What will change people, not just put a Band-Aid over and keep them from doing some wrong for a period of time. I mean, what will really get in and change a person from the inside out? What Paul is teaching here is that there is only one thing that does that. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news about who he is and what he has done because the gospel of Jesus Christ goes in and changes a person from the inside. It takes out that which is wrong, that which is domineering. It puts to death that which controls and it creates a brand new heart, a brand new identity, a brand new existence. So what you have to do is you have to preach the gospel to your kids. You have to live the gospel around your kids. You have to get them involved in activities surrounded with the gospel because morality is never going to cause them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. It's going to incite them to more sin. But if with the moral teaching, you add to that the gospel so they see the condition of their heart and their great need and then run to Jesus then and only then can they be changed. So lesson number one, oh how greatly sinful sin is and lesson number two, morality in itself can never produce change. Let's go now to the sixth verse. That was the negative side of the picture. The negative side, the life without Christ. Now we're going to look in verse 6 at the positive side of the equation. 
And just consider again. Remember the purpose for which Paul is writing this chapter. He is writing this chapter to say to the ones who are accusing him that your preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to push people toward lawless, godless living, Paul. If you keep discounting the law of God like you're doing and holding up the free grace of God through Christ, what you're going to do is you're going to incite people to sin. And what Paul is proving here is that, in fact, it's exactly the opposite. Morality alone is the thing that's going to incite people to sin. What people need is something that can really change them instead of just frustrate them. They need something that radically transforms them from the inside. And Paul is saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing, the one thing that does that. So it's not going to incite people toward sin. It is going to produce the very kind of people that God wants. Verse 6. Paul goes on to the positive side and he says this, but now. Here's the but now again, like Romans 3.21. But now, the great change I'm about to tell you about the great difference, the transformation that takes place in the life of the individual who has now come to Christ. But now, we are released from the law, having died to that which held its captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In a general sense, what Paul is saying here is that the entire... Let me just point this out and then I'm going to show you some specific things. That the entire purpose of the gospel, the entire goal for which we are saved is not simply to save us from sin, remove the the destiny of hell and give us heaven. No, that's not the goal. The goal is so that in verse 6, the goal of this transformation, this new life in Christ is so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code, so that we may serve God, we may produce fruit unto God. He talks about that. Just in the next verse or two. And the word there for serve is also used as slave. See, the purpose is that he would produce servants or slaves of Christ who will live their lives for him. Let me give it to you even with a more direct statement that the purpose of salvation is sanctification. The purpose of you getting saved is that you would become holy. That is the purpose. That is what it means to produce fruit. That is what it means to serve in the new way of the Spirit. It means that your life is becoming more like Jesus Christ, that the reason God saved you is not just to give you a ticket out of hell. He saved you so that you would become holy. That's the purpose. That's the grand goal of salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Listen to this verse. 
even as he, God, chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The purpose of our salvation, the reason he chose us and called us to himself in salvation was so that we would be holy and blameless. That's the purpose. Do you see how this so directly speaks to those who are saying to Paul, Paul, you're preaching about grace. It's producing people who are just going to go out and live lawless lives. And Paul says, you don't understand the gospel at all. The gospel, the entire intent of the gospel is that it gives the way, it provides the possibility of doing what could never be done without the gospel. Because without the gospel, you're in bondage. You're, there is no way you can live to please God. But once you are saved, now you have the Spirit of God that can help you live in a way that pleases God i.e. sanctification, i.e. holiness. So Paul is so perfectly and directly correcting those who are misunderstanding his teaching and accusing him as inciting sin. So let me show you now the distinctive differences in the transformation between the negative pre-salvation side of in verse 5 and the having been justified in verse 6. I want to just give you five differences that are all included either explicitly or implicitly in verse 6. Here's the first one. That the person at salvation, at justification, has a brand new relationship to the law. They have a brand new relationship to the law of God. You see, it's not that the law died. The law of God is still alive and well. What died is that they died. The person that accepted Christ died with Christ to the law. So that their relationship to the law now has forever changed. They're not under the law anymore. You see, sin, guilt of sin, places us under the law because the law of God is righteous and holy and good. And it says that sin earns death, death physical and death eternal, separation from the Father forever in hell. But in this new life, there is a death to sin, that relationship of being under the law, under the domineering, controlling, condemnation and judgment of the law. It is ended forever. End of that relationship. And there's a new relationship that has begun. Here is how Jeremiah talks about it. In talking about the new covenant that God is going to make with Jesus, way back in the Old Testament, Jeremiah said this, about God, that God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a new covenant with you, not like the old covenant that was written on tablets of stone. What was the old covenant written on tablets of stone? The Ten Commandments, inscribed by the finger of God, given to Moses. Where were those in relationship to the individual? They were external. 
They were outside. Paul says, there is a brand new relationship to the law now. And here's the relationship. It now becomes inward. God, Jeremiah said it like this. God says, I will write my law on their minds and on their hearts. No longer external, but now actually a part of the individual. Actually a part of their very identity. That's what happens at justification. God writes His laws on our hearts and on our minds so that our relationship to the law radically forever changes. It used to be an external thing that was on the outside and we tried to obey it and tried to do the thing that was right, but it was absolutely impossible because the domineering, controlling force of our life was sin. And when we saw the law of God and wanted to do the right to justify ourselves by obeying the law, we found of this very thing, that the law actually incited us to sin even more. Not only could it not save us, it made us worse. But when you get saved, something radical takes place. What God inscribed on the tablets of stone with his finger, he writes on the tablets of your heart and on your mind so that they're yours. They're not separated from you and something you're trying to force in. They're actually a part of your very identity and who you are. Radical different relationship that we have to the law. And that leads to a second truth that flows from that. And here it is. The second contrast between the person of five, and the person of six. It's that they have a new understanding of the law. A new understanding of the law. Here was the understanding of the law in verse five. Think of the Jewish people now. And it's true in a certain capacity with every one prior to salvation. But what was the Jews' mindset about the law? It was this, obey the law, every bit of the law, and escape the punishment of God. That I obey the law and I escape hell. It was a motive of a push toward self-preservation. But what happens to the person who has been saved and they have the law of God written on their minds and their hearts, they have a new understanding about the law. And here is what Scripture says. They see the spirit behind the law. Do you know that the legalist never sees that? The, the moralist, think about the, the Pharisee, the, the Judaizer in Paul's day, and the legalist and moralist today, what they look at is the external pieces. Here are the do's, here are the don'ts. I got to do the do's and stay away from the don'ts. And they never see behind the do's and the don'ts to the heart of the law. And 
they are blind to that. In fact, Scripture talks about whenever the law of God was read to them, a veil was over their hearts, though they read it every week, though they studied it regularly, though their teachers wrote commentaries on it and spent their whole lives trying to help people figure out how to follow the details of the law. What happened was that they missed the entire purpose of the law. They never saw behind the external pieces to the heart. But when a person is saved, they have a new spirit in them. They are awakened to, in their understanding to see the very heart behind the law. The great statement about this is Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, second half of that chapter. Jesus begins to talk about what the real heart of the law is, and he says things like this. So you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But here is what I tell you. Look at a woman lustfully, and you're guilty. Heart of the law. You have heard that it was said, do not kill, but I tell you, hate your brother, and you're guilty of the murder. You see, the issue behind the law and behind the external commandments, let me sum it up for you in one word. It is love. Love is the fulfillment of the law of God. Jesus was asked a question. Some tried to trap him and ask him about the most important commandment in the law. And Jesus used that opportunity to show them what the very heartbeat and centerpiece behind all of the law was. And he said this, here it is. Let me tell you what the most important thing is. And then he gave a twofold answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this, and it's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything, and love people like you love yourself. You do that, you're going to fulfill the law. You're going to fulfill the heart behind the law because what God is concerned about is the heart. And so what happens in the person when they come to Christ and get saved, that external law that was something that was external that they could never obey that actually incited them gets written on their hearts and they have a new relationship to it and they begin to see it for what it really is and for what it was intended to do. It was never intended to save. Which is what those who look at the external only try to do with it. They try to use it as a means by which they appease God. That's the legalist. Chapter 7 is written to the legalist. Here's the third contrasting difference here, and it flows naturally from the first two, and it's this, that the individual that comes to Christ has a brand new motive for living. A brand new motive a brand new focus and purpose in life. You see, before it was sin, domineering, controlling, centerpiece, guiding, influencing all aspects of life. But when the person accepts Christ, that heart of stone is taken out and the heart of flesh is put in there and God inscribes His laws on the heart and on the mind. And then there is a motive. Because the law of God is now a part of them, there is a motive that is oriented not around self anymore, but around God. And that leads 
to the fourth truth, and it's this, that they have a new desire for righteousness. Now let me say a strong statement here. You remember the phrase in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Every believer, every true believer, it is my conviction that they hunger and thirst for righteousness. That if they don't, they need to check the condition of their heart. Now, I'm not saying that there is the same intensity among every believer hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Nor am I saying that there is always the success in doing the things that line up with righteousness. But what I am saying is this, that if you're a true believer, you are going to want to do the things God wants you to do. It doesn't mean you'll never want to do the wrong, but you are going to want to do the things that God wants you to do because he puts the law of God in your heart and mind. He puts that desire in you. That's what distinguishes you from someone who is in the flesh and under the law. You are no longer under the law and its condemnation. You are now in the Spirit capital S, and the Spirit of God wants the things of God, and if you're in Him, you want the things of God. Radical difference Paul is teaching us here. And then number five, and oh, I am so grateful for number five. Not only do we have a new relationship to the law so that it is actually internally a part of us, not only do we have a new understanding of it and see what it really is about and the heart behind it and the purpose for it, and not only do we have a new motive for living that's not centered on us but is centered on God, and not only do we have a new desire for the righteous things of God and to flesh them out, but here is the great truth. We have a new power with which to get it done. We have a new power with which to get it done. Paul says that we now live in verse 6 in the new way of the Spirit, capital S. What was the old way of the law? It was a powerless way. It was a way that could never accomplish what God wanted. Why? Because the law was weakened by our sinful nature. We couldn't do it. What was the old way? It was this, the law kills. That's what the Bible says, the law kills. But what does the Spirit do? The Spirit brings life. The Spirit brings life. So what the Spirit of God does when He comes into an individual and takes them from being in the flesh to being in the Spirit, from being under the law of God to being under grace, that He actually gives them the power to live the life that God wants them to live so that the hungering and thirsting for righteousness in the power of God can actually be pursued. 
can actually be realized in a growing fashion day by day as they are continually seeking the things of God, submitting to the things of God, accessing the power of God. You see, at salvation through justification, here is what Peter tells us, that we actually participate in the divine nature. It is actually God that comes to dwell in us through His Spirit to enable us to do what we could never do. So that when we are told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, the promise that follows in verse 13 is this, that it is God who works in us to will and to act according to His good purpose. So yes, it can be done because nothing is impossible for God. Where are you at? Are you struggling as a believer? You need to realize and access the power that God has made available for you. You can live in a growing way into greater and greater levels of sanctification, greater and greater degrees of holiness, more and more like Jesus Christ. It can and will happen as you access the power of God's Holy Spirit that He gives you toward that end. That is the radical difference between Romans 7, 5 and Romans 7, 6. And so what is the great result then? The great result of this new relationship to and understanding of the law, the great result to this new motive for living, new desire for righteousness, and new power to get it done, what is the result? The result is this. It's that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit and bear fruit for God. Let me give it to you by reading a verse from 2 Corinthians 3.18. Here it is. Here's the result. Here's the goal. Here's the byproduct of this kind of life talked about in Romans 7.6. And we all with unveiled face, no longer veiled. The law is never, no longer there to veil us and cover our eyes so we can't see and do what we need to do. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you hear the promise there? Paul says, we all, meaning we all believers, not a few elite few, but all followers of Christ, we all, here's what we have the privilege of doing, of seeing with unveiled faces, beholding God's glory, and in our growing understanding of who God is and His glory, what happens to us is that that vision of God, as it grows, changes us. It makes us more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ. And how does that happen? It happens through the Lord who is the Spirit, the Spirit of God working in us to make us more like His Son. That's the product. In the promise of Philippians 1.6, Paul says, and I am sure of this, and I am sure of this, Man of God, woman of God, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I am sure of that. That's the radical difference between a life in the flesh under the law and a life in the Spirit under grace. What a powerful refutation that is to those who are saying to Paul, Paul, your teaching about grace is going to lead people to lawlessness. Paul said that is absolutely ridiculous. The only way that they can live in righteousness and in growing sanctification is by coming to Jesus Christ through the grace of God, accepting his new life and having the Spirit of God live in them that will lead them on to greater and greater degrees of glory, of holiness. So what is our response? Let me just read you one from Jude. Jude chapter, there's only one chapter, Jude, verse 24. Let me just. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That's our response. That's the worthy response. Would you please stand? Worship team, would you come? Just a simple question for you. Are you living in Romans chapter 7, verse 5, in the flesh, under the law, hopeless, guilty, and condemned? Or are you living in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, in the Spirit, under grace, with all of the blessings that come with that and the promise of His Spirit that will carry you on to growing, increasing levels of holiness, sanctification, and eventually wind you up in heaven. Only you can answer that. If you're in Romans chapter 7, 5, guilty and hopeless, Jesus Christ today, this day, right now, is saying to you, I want to save you. I want to offer my free gift to you and move you from being in the flesh under the condemnation of the law to being in my spirit under grace, moving on toward sanctification and eventually glory. He wants to do that for you freely right now, right now. And then if you are a believer here and you're saying, man, I just, I have not been 
living according to the truth that I know is available for me. And the Spirit of God wants to help you to do that. You've got to surrender to Him. You've got to ask Him to help you. And then you've got to commit to going with Him, to working out what He's working in. Because you have been given all that you need to live a godly life. Let's pray. Father, I just, I just give you your truth. I've done the best that I know how. You take it. You apply it. You speak. Draw. Open minds. Reveal. Convict, console, do whatever it is, Lord, that is needed. You're the sovereign Lord. Believe that you're here. Believe that your truth is living and active. Is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. Have your way. As we sing, I'm just going to encourage you, if you want to come to the altars, you come and do that. Whatever you need to deal with God, you come and do that at the altar. He'll meet you there. Let's sing.